Well, good morning, everybody. If this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, we are so glad that you chose to spend your Sunday morning with us at Thrive Church. Um, I don't know how you're spending your um, pandemic days locked down and at home. Uh, hopefully you're finding something to do. Our family has been enjoying, for whatever reason, uh, British television. Um, it's amazing what you can get on Apple TV, and we've uh, had several shows that we've found um, binge-worthy. And uh, so if you're looking for recommendations, please let us know. We'd be delighted to share with you um, some of our favorites. Um, but the latest show, the one that has captured our attention, is the, uh, the venerable Downton Abbey. Um, it was on uh, PBS for... Uh, I guess quite some time, but and now there's a movie and, and all of that. But we've gotten interested in the show, and, and quite honestly, <laughs> we're, uh, we're invested in the characters, and um, so maybe you have watched it. Um, but if you haven't seen it, uh, it, it follows the story of the families and the people living in a large English manor house out in the countryside. And um, it's a large estate. Um, held by a wealthy aristocrat. And it also talks about the servants who live in the same house and actually are employed by the family to serve them in their various um, uh, sorts of social functions and whatnot, things that apparently um, wealthy aristocrats did at that, in that day and age. It's a fascinating look into things like class, um, you know, socioeconomics and post-war or post-Victorian England. And so you've got the wealthy people living upstairs and you have the servants living downstairs. And there is a distinct difference between the two. And things get muddied as crisis um, uh, arises within the storyline. And it's just fascinating look. Highly recommend it. But in one of the more remarkable scenes, uh, one that I, I, I won't soon forget, there's a con conversation between the, the lord of the castle, his name is Lord Grantham, and his heir, a man named Matthew. And the two of them are, are talking, and the younger man is actually mocking in the scene the aristocrat for employing a valet, uh, which... <laughs> took me a while to figure out exactly what that is, but basically a, a valet was a, a gentleman who was hired by the, the, the aristocrat to help him dress, which seems a little odd in today's um, uh, society, but in post-Victorian England, uh, aristocrats would often change many times during the day and for different occasions and for different social functions. And so they actually employed men and women to, to help them dress. And so you have this younger man who didn't necessarily grow up in that same environment uh, coming into this family and finding it all a bit strange. And, and so he's, he's actually having a conversation with Lord Grantham about his valet, his, his man who helps him to dress. And, but the, the aristocrat turns to this younger man and he simply asks if the younger man would deny another person the opportunity to earn a living doing honorable work. 
It's a really interesting comment that he makes or a question that he asks. And, and, and he says it in a rather pointed way and, and said, you know, are you so willing to basically get rid of a person who is trying to earn a living? And of course, the younger man hadn't uh, thought about that. It hadn't even occurred to him. But I think what I find so fascinating about the exchange is that you have this older, wealthier man who, who grew up in this set of circumstances, and he sees um, himself um, as a, a beneficiary to, to the local community. So the valet is, is neither superfluous or ostentatious, but rather it is an opportunity um, for, uh, for a person to have gainful employment. And so he really saw his wealth as, as a means to help another. Now, now please don't misunderstand this. Uh, I'm not suggesting here that, you know, that's the model of society that we ought ought to go after. In fact, I think there's a lot of problems with that uh, type of, of, you know, caste system bet- uh, between people. <clears throat> but at that particular moment, um, this country lord um, took responsibility for the local village. He really saw, saw the business of his manor and all of the related land ownership and farming and things that went on, he, he really saw that as, as, as a possibility, as a means to employ as many people as he possibly could. If only today's businesses saw themselves as responsible for a local com- uh, community and not necessarily responsible to a group of shareholders, right? Uh, then I think the world would be a very different place. But it's a fascinating look. It's, it's a very interesting idea of a wealthy person using his wealth, not just for his own personal gain, but to try to employ others as well. It's, a, um, it's an interesting thought. Now, the, the, the question is, um, what on earth does Downton Abbey have to do with faith in real life, right? Uh, where is he going with this? Some of you I know are asking that question. What could this story have to do with following Jesus? Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to return to James chapter 2 and see if uh, I might be able to put this stuff together a little bit. So if you have a Bible, please turn to James chapter 2. And uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 14. I'll have it on the screen for you. Uh, Hopefully you can read it okay. But if not, um, James chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. Here we go. James writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? Now, this is an interesting way to come right out of the gate. You see, in the previous section, James had chastised some churches for playing favorites and violating the love your neighbor as yourself. And here he begins to kind of flesh that out a little bit. So he's saying, what, what good is it? <clears throat> and I, I find his example here actually quite compelling. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. You can't just, you know, give them some nice platitude and expect their lives to be better. You actually have to do something about it. Um, I've heard this phrase, and you probably have too, but 
it's really hard for somebody to hear the gospel on an empty stomach. And I think that, that gets to the heart of all of this and why it's, why it's important. In fact, uh, John Wesley, I think, probably embodied um, some of this better than most. When he was training his pastors, he would tell them that um, once they visited someone in, under their care, they first need to, needed to inquire if they had enough food in their pantry and enough fuel for their fire before they could ever inquire about that person's soul. So if it were wintertime, do you have enough to eat and can you keep warm? Because nobody's going to be in a position to have a real conversation about what's going on inside of them if they don't even have their physical needs met. And so James is just pointing this out in very real terms. And he's asking the question to kind of poke and prod a little bit. And he gets real blunt. He goes, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Dead. <laughs> Ouch. I mean, that's laying it out there. And he's, he's trying to make this point um, that faith actually has to do something. And, and here's the thing. He's not even done yet. He continues to go on. Like a good philosopher, he even imagines uh, another person's potential objections. And so here's what he says next, um, verse uh, 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I, uh, I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? It's really interesting. Uh, because he's talking about this idea, idea um, uh, a belief and action, those two things. And for him, they are absolutely inseparable. Uh, actions or deeds cannot save you. He's not suggesting that. Only faith can do it. However, what you do actually shows what it is you believe. So you might think of this as what's the evidence, the actions that you do, your behaviors, the things that you care about. Those types of things are evidence of faith. And this kind of gets back to this idea of faith that works. It's not, you know, faith will save you. It's not deeds that will save you, but rather faith that works uh, is what following Jesus is ultimately all about. He continues on. <clears throat> Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. It was made complete. Those two things, again, are inseparable. And, and I find it interesting that, um, that James is writing to a, a very Jewish audience, and he goes back to Father Abraham. He doesn't pick somewhere else in the Bible. He goes right back to the very beginning, the roots of the Jewish family, to Abraham himself. And um, he continues on with Abraham. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. So you have this faith and action, again, just completely intertwined. They are they are linked. They are inextricably linked. The two things, at least in, in the mind of James, are together 
two sides of one coin, call it however you want. But this stuff has to work itself out. Verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Ouch. Okay, that one hurts a little bit. And this is one of the reasons why Martin Luther absolutely hated this book. Um, We do believe that we are saved by faith alone. But to be considered righteous, to have righteous behavior is shown by the works that we do, by the deeds that we do, by the actions that we, we take. Uh, and it's a challenging thought here because it's not just about what's here, but what works out in your hands. Um, and those two things are held in, in tension to a certain degree. And of course, he finishes off here <clears throat> in the same way. Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. (laughs) There's this part of me that I like, oh, James, you're stirring the pot on this one. Because in Jewish history, Rahab is is actually part of... um, um, the the historical narrative. If you remember, if you remember your history, your Jewish history, then certain spies um, came to the city of Jericho and they hid in Rahab's house. Uh, Rahab uh, had a bit of a reputation. In fact, she had an occupation. She was a prostitute, and it's interesting that that becomes part of the story. Out of Every person you can think of, Rahab would probably be the worst reputation, and yet she was still considered righteous because of her actions. And James is using that to full effect here. So do you get the idea that acts of compassion and grace and mercy are important? Yeah, I I think so. I think it's true. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about our identity as followers of Jesus. And I think I had on the screen kind of a little diagram that would help us understand that. But one of the things that we, we figured out as we, as we sorted through what it, mean, what it meant to have your identity in Christ, one of the things that we learned, anyway, is that we learned that we have certain rights. We do. We have certain rights because we are followers of Jesus. Um, We have the right to call ourselves sons and daughters of God because he's adopted us. We also have the right um, to the Holy Spirit as a down payment on eternity. Paul writes about this um, extensively. But that's a right that we have or sometimes called a birthright. We also have the right to direct access to God the Father through Jesus. We have that as well. That's a right that we have. If you are a follower of Jesus, you claim that, then you have certain rights. All those three things. Last week, we learned that there's another side to this. I think it's important that we kind of circle back to that. We learned that every right has a corresponding set of responsibilities. So you have a right, but you also have responsibility or a couple of responsibilities. And at, at, at minimum, I think our responsibility is to pass along 
the things that we've been given. I think there's a um, passage where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and says, freely you have received, now freely give. So turn around, give this teaching away to people. You see, I think it's okay to benefit from the blessings that God gives us, and, and he gives us many. You have your set of blessings, I have mine, and the people around you all have been given something by God. But the point is, is that they were never meant to be kept to ourselves. We, we have to do something with them. If nothing else, you have to hone them. You actually have to use them and, and make them sharp and to make them better, whatever your giftedness is, whatever, whatever it is that you've been given. But it's always meant to be shared with others. Always. That's the economy of God. So it, it's one of the reasons why Paul often talks about the body being in many parts. And, and you know, you've heard me talk about this before. But ultimately, when we're, when, we're, when we're dealing with things like rights and responsibilities, yes, you have the right to have access to God, and, and he has given you some things, and therefore you are responsible for their use, but I think you're also responsible for passing them along. That's action. That's deed. There are things that you're supposed to do with it. I, I like it this way, that, to say it this way, that you're blessed in order to bless. In fact, going back to Abraham, uh, I, I should have put the, the verse up on the screen, but um, God says to him that all nations will be blessed by you. So Abraham's making this um, uh, relationship with God, and God says to him very clearly, you know, I'm going to bless you, and you in turn will bless all nations. Well, if you look at the construction of the Hebrew, it's almost a command. In fact, I think it is a command. I have blessed you, therefore go and be a blessing. Um, we're conduits of that blessing. It's not just for us, but it's also for, for others. And that's our responsibility. So if you've received grace and love and mercy and and peace and you know from Jesus um, in your relationship with him then there's a responsibility that you actually share that with someone else if that makes any sense and we may believe rightly we might have all of the right information in our head we might even you know have the bible completely memorized and and we we've we've got a firm foundation in all of that but what james is saying hey where's the evidence Where's the evidence? And I, I'm going to go off on just a little aside here. Um, but I, I stress about that just in my, my own thought of, of a church. You know, as we're, as we're, you know, we're Thrive Church and we're gathered together, and I don't think it's coincidence that God brought the group of people together that he has. I, I, I don't think that it's coincidence at all. But I do think that there's <clears throat> something collectively that he's calling us to do, something he's calling us to be. And I, I stress uh, about that. I don't want to be just another church where we all kind of get together and we, we're convinced that we believe rightly, but rather that we would do right as well and that we would take this seriously, that our faith would be evident by the way we behave, by the way we speak to others not just face-to-face, -face, but also online. Can I say that? Will you still love me if I do?
Yeah. <clears throat> Recently, I was having a conversation with someone who said that um, his family um, enjoyed shopping at a local Reezer's, uh, the grocery store. Uh, for those of you who are outside of, of the Tulsa area, Reezer's is a grocery store chain here. And they, they liked to shop at that store because they had heard um, how that company took care of its employees during the pandemic. And that for, for them, it was almost kind of a source of pride that they were, uh, in a good way, um, that they felt like they were supporting um, the good behavior, the good deed that the company had done. I know a lot of other um, retail outlets have you know, taken quite a bit of heat for how they've treated their employees, but this is one that was relatively local. And, and my wife and I have had a similar thought um, when we sometimes would go get curbside service at a local restaurant. You know, I'm grateful that I have a job and um, I can't be blind to the, the current, you know, sort of market conditions that puts a lot of people in jeopardy. And <clears throat> we don't always eat out, um, but we try to do that at least a little bit regularly um, so that we can keep local people working, hopefully safely. You know, they're wearing masks and washing their hands and that sort of thing, and maintaining good distance. But we, we do expressly try to, to patronize those local businesses near our home uh, because we know it employs people. And so we try to do our part that way. Now, now look, here, here's the thing. I don't want you to, to be listening to this, to be watching this and saying, you know, think, uh, that you might be thinking that, oh, it's, hey, look at us and, you know, look at what we're doing. And look, that's not the point. That's not the point. Rather, all I'm trying to do is, is point out one place where we try to attempt to live our faith in real life. I have something, I have a job, I have an income, I'm very grateful for it. And I, the, what, I, what I'm trying to do is, is, is to use that in such a way where it keeps some other people employed. I'm no Lord Grantham. <laughs> I don't employ a valet. Um, in fact, um, I have a hard time you know, getting dressed myself. I don't necessarily need to try to direct somebody else to do it. Uh, and maybe you can understand that. But I do, um, what I do have, I want to try to, to share as freely as I possibly can to patronize the local businesses that, <clears throat> that are trying to stay in business, that are trying to take good care of their employees. That in itself, even though it's maybe tea tiny, that is one place where our faith is working itself out in real life. If you're doing it with the express purposes of, you know, trying to do good for other people. Hmm. Now, however you decide to act, um, the decisions you choose to make, here's the real life question, right? We're trying to ask that every single time. IRL, in real life. So what's, what's the question? Where does faith that works come from? Where does, that, where does that come from? Whether it's helping the local economy or, or even social justice, right? If you've got you know, some social justice on your mind and um, you know, certain people groups that are 
being treated unfairly, and there are plenty of them uh, in this country and around the world, and, and maybe you just, that, that grips your heart in such a way, yep, where does that come from? It comes from your heart. I think you know this. And you can probably see where this is going. <clears throat> but we repeat it because it is ultimately the essence of discipleship. Faith that works comes when we listen and we respond to what God is saying. When we listen to God and we respond to the things that he says. Look, this is not rocket science. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. It's simple. But it's challenging to do, to listen and to respond. Heart change happens when you're with God. And and I can honestly say that's exactly what Peter and the disciples went through. The fact that they were three years with Jesus and they were listening and responding as they were with him physically, it changed them. And we see this dramatically in the life of Peter, of course. But then they continue on that same path once Jesus has left them. We read it throughout the book of Acts. And so we come right down to it, if you want to have faith that works, it's got to come from, from your heart. And the only place where that heart change happens is when you're listening and responding, when you're in the presence of God, when you're with him. The older I get, the more convinced I am of this. Because ultimately, all, all of us have a bit of wretchedness in us. And all of us have quite a bit of selfishness inside of us. And so for us to shift, to begin to think about others, requires something deep inside of us to change. And I can't change you. I've said this before. Um, There's no words that I can give that will change you and your heart. That's God's job. And so the best thing I can do for you and for your faith in real life, in real time, is to point you back to his presence and allow him to shape and mold you, allow him to interact with you, to have a relationship with you so that your heart changes and your behavior changes and your actions change and you begin to see a much bigger world, a much more hopeful world because you and your faith are a part of it. Very simply, you need to make the time. I know it's hard. Even in the pandemic, I swear, I feel busier now than I did beforehand. I'm not sure where the days go, but they get eaten up, and I'm sure yours do too. I feel like I'm supposed to have more time, but I don't. So I have to make time for God. The second thing you have to do is you got to ask questions. You know, maybe there's something that's going on right now and just in, in your life and in, in your set of circumstances and you're not sure what to do or you're not sure why it's happening and you're feeling a bit unsettled. That's a great time to go, God, what's going on here? What is it that you want to teach me through this? What is it that you want to say? What, what is it that you want me to know about it? And then third is to listen. And, and you, you've got two ways of doing this. First, when you make time, you have to kind of listen in a concentrated way. 
you have to ask the question and go, God, would you speak to me about that? And just be quiet. Zip it. Doesn't have to be for, you know, an hour or more, but maybe for a few minutes. You just allow yourself to listen. It's a good chance that God's going to say something to you, though you might not recognize it at first. That's okay. You got to learn. But the other, the other place where listening happens is throughout the rest of your day. <clears throat> because I think sometimes God will speak to those questions just in a conversation that you have with, with someone you know. It could be your spouse, could be your kids, could be a coworker, could be something you hear on the radio. You might be surprised. Something you overhear in a, in a restaurant or a coffee shop. Oh, wait, we're not going there right now, right? You know what I mean. You might overhear some, some other people talking and it might just strike you in a particular way and you realize, hmm, that was from God. I needed to hear that. Might be the lyric of a song, might be a sermon that you're watching online, whatever it happens to be. Listening happens in a concentrated way when you're with God, but it also happens periodically throughout the day. And I would finally just add this. If you feel like God is speaking to you about something, please write that down. Put a date on it. It, it doesn't have to be a long narrative. It just if you've got a place, it could be you know, notes on your phone or it could be a little notebook you carry. It doesn't matter. The point is, write it down so that ultimately you've got a record of it. So faith that works comes from what's going on in your heart. So what is going on in your heart? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for um, your word and some of the pointed questions that James asks. Some of the things that he's saying to us, they might be a little bit painful for some. I understand that. But God, I trust you. I trust that there's a reason why you're um, moving in the direction that you are. And God, I'm also hopeful that you'll speak to every person that's listening. And as they learn how to listen and respond, and they feel their heart change, that we would begin to see not just a church that gathers, but a church that moves, that acts, that gets involved in things that really matter to the people around us, that we would figure out what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I'm going to thank you in advance for what you're going to do, not only through our church, but also what you're going to do in, inside of each one of us individually. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.